0: It's a very important story in in the Gospel of Luke. Um, By the way, I just want to keep track of time here, sorry. (laughs) You know the old Baptist saying is that when the church, when the pastor lays his watch on the altar, it means absolutely nothing except that he's forgetting what time it is, so try to be a little more careful. Um, uh, In Luke, we find Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. Um, They have traveled from Nazareth there. It's actually not unlikely that Joseph actually is from Bethlehem um, and lived there and went to Nazareth to get married and then that's another story, but it's very interesting. And, and um, anyway, they're, they're back in uh, Bethlehem. They've been there for some time. Uh, Jesus is born and then um, uh, then he is circumcised on the eighth day according to the Torah and now they walk uh, just a few miles from Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem for the presentation, which is also according to Torah, which you can read about in Leviticus 12, uh, verses six and following, and I'll just read an excerpt here. So they're following the law of Moses. When the days of her purifying are completed, the mother shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, a lamb a year old for a burnt offering. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So um, there's a lot that we can discern from uh, this. Um, first of all, it's likely that Joseph and Mary were quite humble in uh, financially probably poor or at least common. Uh, they couldn't have afforded a lamb and so they brought uh, the, uh, the, um, the lesser of the offerings, the turtle doves or the two pigeons. And while they're in the temple, they meet uh, Simeon and Anna. Uh, As far as we know, they've not known them before. Um, And in this cast of four, Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna, we find just an extraordinary combination of attributes that Luke intends to highlight so that we understand the story of Jesus in its fullness. So Luke, first of all, is keen to emphasize that those who were known to have been first-hand witnesses of the life of Jesus were trustworthy. Now keep in mind that the Gospels are written, as it were, kind of uh, after people were familiar with the story, of course. They come a little bit later. People were talking about these things long before the Gospel stories were written. And so you have uh, conversations, you have oral traditions, you have Um, stories being passed around from community to community. And so Anna and Simeon were already known among the community of believers. And when Luke and the others are telling this story, they wanna make sure that it's clear to people who don't know them that these are very trustworthy witnesses. And there are certain ways that Jewish people at this time would have communicated that. Uh, So that's one thing. And and so Luke is wanting to emphasize their character. Um, In the Jewish mind, Trustworthiness is based on character. Now, we might think, well, of course, but actually in in our culture, uh, trustworthiness is often based on how much money you have or how much power and prestige or how much success you have. For the Jewish uh, community, um, character, especially among the believing community, character was essential. And that applies not only to men, of course, but to women as well. And here we see the primary attributes are humility and then especially righteousness, and devotion. You know, again, to American ears, uh, those might sound like nice spiritual words, but probably don't have a whole lot of cachet, like we don't walk around thinking of people as being righteous and devout. That would actually probably scare us. Um, it sounds a little like the Taliban. You know, they're righteous and devout, and they're the bad guys. Um, this was, you know, something that would have communicated um, trustworthiness to the hearers, and I hope that we will be formed also in receiving those words uh, as something that we should be aspiring to as well. Mary and Joseph were devout; they were humble. You know, from the stories, of course, they were careful, and by that, by careful, I mean that when Mary uh, was visited by the Holy Spirit and become became uh, pregnant, Joseph was careful in how he treated that news. He was not cavalier. Uh, he was thoughtful, he was open and receptive to the fact that something like this had happened to Mary, and he was concerned with their reputation. He was a careful person. They were resilient. Um, They managed that well. They knew how to think through the implications of such a thing. They were obedient. They went where they were told to go. Um, They were modest and poor, probably. Uh, Simeon, um, verse 25 Uh, So much uh, power in one verse, so economical in the way it describes Simeon. Now, here was a man in Jerusalem, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Wow. Okay, we'll get into that a little bit more. You could spend a lot of time there. He was righteous and devout. uh, What that means, what, what righteous and devout means is that he had a heartfelt obedience to God and to the Torah, So devotion just doesn't mean checking boxes and being legalistic. In fact, that disqualified you from being righteous and devout. I mean, think of the Pharisees as the poster children of that kind of way of being, all right? This is not what God values. Righteousness and devotion are held together because Torah, in order to be faithfully uh, uh, carried forth, has to be grounded in a living relationship with God. Faith expressed in action. Faith expressed in action. You'll find this word throughout Luke. Luke, of course, also writes Acts. And you'll find in Acts that there were devout men gathered, men and women gathered for Pentecost. You'll find that devout men buried uh, Stephen after his martyrdom. You'll find that Ananias, who is the courageous man that receives Paul after he's had this vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, He's a devout man, and he takes him in, and he actually heals Paul of his blindness. So this is very powerful stuff. Uh, Simeon is alive to the Holy Spirit. Um, he, the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit reveals plans to him. This is almost like an Old Testament prophet. And you'll, say, it, it, and you'll see here that uh, Simeon waits. That says a lot about the depth of belief against the pressure of time. I think any of us who have experienced seasons of waiting know that they're very difficult. It says a lot about a person that they wait. And what he's waiting for is the consolation of Israel. Consolation of Israel is deeply forged in Israel's memory. They are a people waiting for something. They're waiting for the fulfillment of a promise. And that picks up just the the, the cascading prophecies and oracles, especially in Isaiah, Isaiah. Um, this word consolation, you can hear it in Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. I use the King James, of course, because it's so ingrained in this and handles Messiah. Um, and, of course, that verse in Isaiah chapter 1 leads forward into the ministry of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So this is a very important passage for Luke. Uh, it's, you also hear this tone of consolation in Isaiah 57, verse 14, build up. Build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way," says the Lord. I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the heart of a contrite. I will heal and restore and bring comfort to him and his mourners. Peace, peace to the far and to the near. Can you see, even in those words, you can hear the resonance with the message of Luke uh, as he describes the, um, the ministry of Jesus. And there are many, many more verses of consolation in Isaiah. And this is what uh, Simeon is waiting for. And not only him, Anna, in her uh, uh, bearing witness to Jesus, speaks to others who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Quite a group, quite a community to belong to. Anna we meet. She's a prophetess of Israelite lineage. Those are her kind of credentials, as it were. She is of age. Uh, it's difficult to know exactly how old she was. Depends. She's either 84 or 105. Um, uh, either way, uh, you know, um, she's had uh, a rich and interesting life. She is a widow, uh, which carries a lot of cachet. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the apocrypha, you may know the story of Judith. Judith. Um, she also is a widow, and um, she has a, a an incredible story. Um, it, it's actually quite dramatic. She cuts off the head of a very powerful man in uh, obedience to the Lord, and you can find all kinds of really interesting medieval uh, and Renaissance paintings depicting that. Um, Anyway, uh, people who would have been familiar with that story, as many would have at this time, uh, would would find uh, this description of Anna compelling character uh, um, attestation a widowhood as a sign of devotion, piety, honor. Uh, and she fasted. And I found a very interesting comment by scholar Joel Green, who uh, interprets this as fasting as protest. And I, I thought this is a very interesting uh, a- angle here, fasting as protest. And what he says is uh, protest that all is not well. It, it's an expression of her hope, a form of prayer, entreating God to set things right. So her abstinence is a sign of saying, I- I'm acknowledging that it's not right yet. And so her intercession is a-, a protest against that which is not yet aligned with the coming kingdom of God. I think that's very powerful to think about. I had never thought about fasting uh, from that perspective and certainly elevates my view of what Anna was doing all this time uh, at the temple. So one thing I hope that you'll see here is that Mary and Joseph, and Simeon, and Anna, as representatives of Israel, and as of Israel's people, are on a journey that's formed, and that's, that's one of the things I want to address with us today is formation. It, it's, the, it's the absolute requirement of God's people to be formed in order to bear forth the kingdom of God until it's complete in the new world. That's our vocation. And you can see how essential that is for the ministry of God now that Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna are formed. They're not just good people. That's not formation. Formation means that their imaginations are on fire with the promise of God to such an extent that it has a deep effect on the way that they live out their lives. That's formation. Formation in the faithfulness of Torah, which purpose is to create a people of God set apart for the fulfillment of his covenant promise. That's formation. Israel is like a tree bearing fruit as an expression of God's love formation. It's not by chance that Anna and Simeon and Mary and Joseph all find themselves together in the temple because the temple is the epicenter of Israel's worshiping life. doesn't matter how far away from the temple you were, it was still the center, even if you were all the way in Babylon or all the way far south in Egypt. That is the place of God's presence. His altar is there. The Ark of the Covenant is there with the with aspects of Israel's journey. And there are other symbols in the temple, the showbread and, and the candelabra with the oil that are depictions and metaphors of, of God's faithfulness and care for his people. The bread is the symbol of Israel, it, it's, it's the people. And the candelabra actually has bowls of olive oil that are tilted towards the showbread to show God's enduring attention to the love of his life, and that's where they find themselves at the heart. Mary, Joseph, Simon and Anna are formed around the temple's purpose and significance, and they're connected to its meaning and power. and they're guided and this is important, providentially by God, to this exact place at this exact time. We'll come back to that theme again. it's very important. And this is how it works. People formed by God with soft hearts, the Old Testament word, and open eyes guided by his providence to experience the gospel personally and to bear witness of it to other people as they wait for the promise to be fulfilled. That's an exciting life. It's a dynamic life. It's a life that resonates with the very heartbeat of God as he's moving forward towards covenant fulfillment. And so God has prepared them for the main character of the story, which I've left best for last, which is Jesus. God incarnate as an infant. He's silent, but he's the greatest among them. God become flesh. God so humble that he is held up in the arms of an old man. It just staggers the, the imagination that this has happened. Jesus lifted up and presented as a human being, as a representative on behalf of all human beings. All the prophecies have spoken of him, all of Israel's worship directed towards him, all of Israel's promises confirmed in his arrival and ministry, and there he is in the temple. The presence of God in the temple. For the very first time in an entirely new way as a human. God, of course, was always present in the temple. That is what the temple is all about, but not like this. And he broke all the barriers. And it's amazing that that happens in the presence of four humble poor people. It's similar to the choirs of angels (laughs) singing to a few shepherds. He's so pleased with so little by our standards. And this is something that we're going to see throughout the gospel story. We'll see and hear it in Simeon's song. Simeon's song is an expression of personal gratitude first. In the vast scheme of things, God is very interested in our lives The first uh, passage of Simeon's song is a very personal one. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He's lived with this a long time. He's prayed about this privately a long time. He's talked about it in his community that Anna refers to of the waiting ones. But this is deeply personal. And so when he sees Jesus... It comes out in that very personal way first before it becomes very grand. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He doesn't even call himself by his own name. God's eternal plan is also very personal to each one who's involved with it. And what we find out about that plan are the grand themes which matter. Salvation. That is the name of Jesus. Yeshua. Salvation universal in scope, which was always the plan way back from the promise to Abraham that through you, Abraham, and your people, all the nations will be blessed. In fact, he goes on to say it's a light for the Gentiles who were dwelling in darkness. And not only is it a light to the Gentiles dwelling in darkness, but it's glory. Glory is a, a, is a, is a word of fulfillment. Glory is what happens when something reaches its apex. The glory of something is its perfection. And so glory that he's talking about it is the consummation of Israel's purpose in Yeshua. All this made tangible, able to be held, able to be seen. It's Eucharistic in nature, which we'll hear in Anna's uh, expression. She gives thanks, which is what Eucharist means. Jesus the Messiah at the heart of worship which initiates thanksgiving and proclamation. Of course, I hope you can hear that symbolic now in our worship service, uh, where, we rep- where Jesus is represented in the bread, and we give thanks, and then we're sent out. And we meet Anna, of course, in her expression of this aspect of Eucharist so well. The Eucharist, of course, is thanksgiving, and she, in her fasting, and in her intercessory protest is, like Simeon, given her answer in Jesus personally, and she gives thanks. And she expresses that thanksgiving in the community of others like, who, like her and like Simeon, were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Again, isn't that so meaningful for us? Because that's what we're doing every week. We're giving thanks, and we're looking forward together. It's such a contrast, by the way, to the powers around them um, you know, there's a lot going on outside of Bethlehem and outside of Jerusalem. You know, at, this is, you know, at the time of Jesus' birth, you have Octavian, Caesar Augustus, one of the most powerful rulers ever, um, and, and a magnificent ruler, really. Uh, he, I, that's a long story, but there's Caesar Augustus, the greatest of the Roman emperors. He gets a whole month of the calendar. Jesus, of course, gets the whole year. Um, and you have Herod. Herod dies in about f- the year four. All right, so most of the life of ministry is under the. Uh, uh, it, it, um, let me back up. This is really, it's more to Octavian. Octavian dies very early in Jesus' life, and he's succeeded by Tiberius, kind of a depressing guy. All right, uh, but um, Herod, King Herod, is kind of like the Roman-approved king of the Jews. All right, and he's a very complicated person, he's ruthless, and he's kind of like, he's a little insecure because he doesn't come from the, the kind of a tribe of Abraham, you know, through Abraham, he's an Idumean, which is an eastern group that kind of is converted into uh, Jewish faith. Um, so he, his kind of credentials are a little watered down by some people's standards. And so one of the ways that he tries to impress the Jewish community around him is by building a lot of things. And in fact, he had built what's called the Second Temple. So the temple that Mary and Joseph were in was the temple that Herod built. And when you go to Jerusalem someday, uh, if you haven't been there yet, the, the Western Wall that you can stand there now is the one that Herod built. He was a magnificent builder. And you could see all of this. So I mean, the Roman power was palpable. It's what was putting pressure on Israel and Herod's grand building schemes and impressiveness were all around. Octavian and Herod were kind of at the height of their powers, the Pax Romana, the incredible buildings. It just doesn't seem that God is so excited by their ambitions, apparently. But he is very, very excited about his own plans and purposes. And it's just, it's just exciting for me to think that right into the midst of the, Rome, the height of Roman power and the apex of King Herod's building, right in the middle of that comes the baby Jesus, nestled in the arms of these two humble people. And as great as Octavian and Herod were, they give way. Like I say, Octavian may got his month, but we're talking about the year of our Lord, 2022, and that's quite something to me. But even for Mary and her Jewish family and friends, the story is not over for them. God is never sentimental. And so this isn't just simply a feel-good story. There's still more work to do, and it's very interesting to me that the word that Simeon gives to Mary is not an easy word. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through you your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The ministry of Jesus is on track, and this is not meant to be sentimental. God is at work to bring his kingdom in, to defeat the powers of darkness, and to reveal, in the Old Testament sense, to uncover the shape of people's hearts. And that's what brings the ministry of Jesus with a sharp edge. So there's more to do. And in fact, um, the story is not over and Jesus Jesus grows in wisdom and strength and will step into that, that ministry. But I'd like us to consider just a few things as we kind of apply this to ourselves. First of all, it's God's purpose for us that we're formed this way, shaped by this purpose and promise of the Bible story. We can see how for the Jewish people Formation is participation with others in the biblical story. That's what it means to be formed. Formation isn't just developing attributes. I mean, I kind of think about it like, you know, if you had just a series of black and white stripes in a line, um, there would be no center to that, it would be like a piano. And, and uh, you can make some beautiful music from that. But there's no organizing principle in just black and white in succession. And you think of black and white as, you know, principles or something. But now think of a target. You still have alternating series of black and white, but now it's organized around a middle. It's going somewhere, and you know where to shoot the arrow. That's the difference. And you can create beautiful music from the life with no target, but it's not quite what the Bible's getting at. The Bible wants us to participate and be actors in the story that's going somewhere. And you can see how vital that was for the Jewish people. The Pharisees did not get it. They were were the piano key people. You know, they were doing all the stuff, but there was no organizing principle. And when Jesus came, they did not see and they did not hear and they did not act. In fact, they opposed. so this is really important. Formation is being formed with others in the biblical story, which becomes then the venue for seeing and hearing God as he guides us along its contours towards the fulfillment of its promises. What God is doing is fulfilling this story. So if you want to know what God is doing, but you have no idea what that story is, it's just not the same. God still loves us, and this is not about perfection. Who among us can possibly fathom all that God is doing? No one could have imagined the incarnation. That came out of God's heart himself. It was totally incomprehensible. It's shockingly amazing. And it's not the point that we're perfect in that way, that we're kind of like foretellers. It's just simply that we're resonating with what God is excited about. I love what uh, my son uh, Nathan sent me a quote from Bonhoeffer this week, which was providential. <laughs> um, Bonhoeffer was talking about his discovery of reading the Bible, and he says, we should ask of scripture repeatedly and humbly, and only if we expect from it the, that the ultimate answer, only if we expect from it the ultimate answer, shall we receive it. We come to the Bible with expectancy, and then I love this. He says, we have to venture to enter into the words of the Bible. And I think you can see what that looks like when you look at Mary and Joseph and Anna and Simeon. They were able to see and hear God in part because they were formed in Israel's worship and worldview and because they had soft hearts open to God. God's purposes that are so grand, so grand, are worked out through the lives of very humble people powerless by the world's standards but mighty for God's purposes Mary was willing Joseph was honorable Simeon was waiting Anna was interceding these are the kind of things that are stronger than the the Roman armies and the the building ambitions of, of kings and yet Without God's actions, Simeon's waiting and Anna's interceding would have borne no fruit. Our righteousness is only righteous by virtue of its dependence on God who alone can make it whole and fruitful. You and I are important to God no less than Anna and Simeon and Mary and Joseph. And whether you're as young as Mary or as old as Anna, it's For us, Simeon said, uh, we who are Gentiles, that the light shine to reveal Jesus. That prophecy of Simeon is fulfilled in us out here in Annapolis. And it is through us that God will continue to get his will done. God has promised to each one of us who are a part of his family by faith that we have a right to his voice. We have a right to it because we're his sons and daughters and heirs we have a right to his voice we have a right to his presence we have a right to his guidance that right given to us by him and it is through the engagement with scripture and the community and the faithfulness of our expression and gratitude that our seeing and hearing of him is refreshed and rediscovered and we become ever more grounded in his purpose for our lives and the unique ways that we can contribute to that grand plan of God to bring shalom, the final healing of all things in him. And so I want to encourage us not to be distracted. We are commanded really by Jesus in revelations to not be lukewarm or ambivalent or bored. There is a price to pay for accepting in ourselves a hard heart, or closed eyes, or plugged ears. And there is great pressure in our country especially to become animated by politics, or entertainment, or money, or success. And our our culture is infatuated with these things, and its purpose is to claw us away from formation in the story of God. Now those things are important. I have a day job, I have money to manage, and I have a house, and all those things. And they do require attention. And as Steve is, Father Steve has always, if you've been here for any duration of time, has been a champion of, of helping us to, to see our work as the place where we express God's kingdom ministry. So I'm not meaning to diminish any of that, just to draw attention to the fact that our culture has a lot of distractions in it. But in the same way that the Jewish people oriented their worldview around the temple in Jerusalem as the focus of God's presence and promise, We are the new temple. And our bodies, Paul says, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The baby that Simeon held in his arms now dwells in us, made known through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even our bodies are called temples of the Holy Spirit. And we will not know how to fulfill our promises in these other dimensions of life if we are not as grounded in our temple reality, which is the gospel Christ in us, the hope of glory, Paul says, as Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and Anna were in theirs. So in closing, I'd just like to encourage us that we be like Joseph, that we may have to move from place to place in obedience to God and make some tough choices. We want to be like Simeon. We may have to wait a little. We may have to be like Mary to dig a little deeper into the words where she pondered the words of Jesus in her heart. Or we may be like Anna. We have to abstain and protest until we get the answer. But it's important for us to know, and this is truly the heart of the gospel, that we are not ever without the great gift of Jesus in our, in our midst and in our hearts. That is the heart of this story, and it is not done yet. God is not done presenting his special gifts to his special people you know, when you go over to a child's house, and I'm closing with this, you, you know, you, kids love to show you their special gifts, don't they? Hey, look at this! And they'll just keep coming up, because this is the, the joy of showing their special people, their special things, is the height of childhood joy. I wonder if that's somehow what God might have felt when he saw Jesus presented in the temp- temple, showing his special people the thing that matters to him most. Look at this! But you know it goes even farther than that because at the very end you know that we get presented in the final day. And I'd like to close with Jude's prayer where God shows himself, his special people, the things that matter most to him. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.